0: Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, a brand made famous by Martina Hingis, John McEnroe, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at sergiotacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. As a player, he got to four in the world, posting wins over McEnroe, Connors, Becker, and Edberg. As a coach, he has won seven major titles, six with Andre Agassi and the 2003 U.S. Open with Andy Roddick. Brad Gilbert is today's guest. My man, are you are you good? Me? Yeah, are you ready? Thumbs up. I'm in position. You said 9.30. I'm in position. That's it. Uh, gentlemen, you here. Former world number four. Friend of the show. Coach of, I think you guys won... I think you've won seven major titles as a coach, correct? Seven?
1: Six with Andre, one with uh, Andy Roddick.
0: Yeah, we're going to get into that. Uh, Brad Gilbert, my man, always a pleasure. Thank you. Good
1: morning. How are you? What did you say last time? My career high was 14?
0: Now you, no, you... no, no, no. no. I said uh, four, world number four. No, but last time you said my career high was lower. No, I never would have said that. I never would have said that. That's not, that's not, I don't, I don't make that mistake. Yeah. One of the great parts of your story is that no one could ever believe you got to four. Right. I mean, that's really. You know what? The
1: older you get, the
0: better you used to be. And it's funny, when I, I, you know,
1: when I do some interviews about my playing and stuff like that, I was like, man, that's just so long ago. Like, let's, you know, you, you know, it's funny is even my coaching is a long time ago, you know, for, for Andre. but The
0: coach is getting long
1: stories and I
0: like living in the present so listen you know I do the five set format and the first set is the off the court report listen I gotta tell you you were one of the top guys that was saying from the get-go that this um COVID-19 and this pandemic was was no joke in fact I was driving to Indian Wells and you were driving to the Beverly Hills Tennis Club and you and we were talking on the phone and you were you were um audibly rattled and it turned out that you were right from top to bottom i just curious what your you know first of all how have you spent these last 13 weeks now and what have your perceptions been of the pandemic.
1: Well, firstly, since I got back from Australia, I did one little quick trip a couple of days later to Naples, Florida. I was back middle week, and I've been home every day in Malibu since. And I think this is the long I maybe that's 16, 17 weeks. I think this is the longest stretch I've been in one place since maybe my senior year in high school. Um, I'm not surprised. Uh, from where we were in March to where we got. I'm actually more worried now that as the optimism and hope and reopening everything, that everything's gonna be fine, but it just seems like we gotta be, put the brakes on that hopefully the second wave is not worse than the first wave, then we got massive problems.
0: And, and, um, you know, we're recording this today is, june 11th and um it's been announced that the the cases are going up and that's what's up um what have you done to keep yourself uh you know uh just keep yourself uh mentally and physically fit
1: well i haven't been to the gym since like uh maybe first week in march um, it's probably the longest stretch I've gone without going to like a physical gym, I, I, I can't even remember, since the 90s. Um, if you look out here when uh, where the ocean is, if it's low tide in the morning, um, I go for super long walks early in the morning. I mean, if I sleep past five in the morning, something's wrong. So I usually try to bang out a good 90 minutes uh, in the morning. And on your phone, you got that app, the steps. So I've been trying now since early March. I used to get about 10,000 steps a day. I've been trying to get 20,000 steps a day, you know, so, which is around nine miles a day. Um, and I've been doing anywhere from 500 to 800 push-ups a day. So going old school, just a lot of walking, a lot of push-ups. So when you... So when, and wall over there. Now hang on I, a
0: second. So when you drop and you drop for the push-ups... How many do you do in a shot?
1: Between fifty to eighty, and then maybe I do a set of three.
0: Hang on a second. So you can do. <laughs> hang on a second. You can do uh, seventy-five push-ups uh, in one shot. Yeah, that's that's tremendous, man.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, inc- for, I'm fifty-eight years young, but it's a good way to kind of. It's funny is when I was... So you
0: you drop, hang on a second. So you drop 10 times a day and you're doing push-ups.
1: No, but not 10 times a day. But let's say I'll do, I'll drop in the morning and I'll do a set, three sets of, you know, maybe 50 to 75. I do it again. I do it like four or five times a day. I do like three sets each time. I do a couple minutes break, do another one do a couple, and then my son had some of these bands. We were doing some of these bands until we broke them both. Um, but, you know, just doing whatever we can. Um, I, I, until, you know, maybe the last month or so, I hadn't been going out much at all other than the market to, you know, store up on food. Now I'm venturing out a little more because, you know, the club is open up, hitting a few balls, um, but that's been about it. Been a pretty low profile. Um, and if you're a tennis player, what you got to do is what you got to do. You got to keep yourself ready because you never know when go time is going to be. We're going to
0: we're going to talk about that. Uh, last thing is you you keep your eye on the stock market uh, a special way. Um, has that been a uh, has this been a uh, a puzzling time for you for Brad Gilbert the uh, the investor? Has that has this been a strange time for you?
1: uh i mean i was being taken to the woodshed um i've rallied now like the last couple of days like the market's down 1400 points today we see, seem to have more violent swings and like you can have stocks in one day up 20 or 30 percent down so like things are happening like what would maybe take a year or two years, you see the happening in one day. So you gotta be careful. Um, you gotta have patience and you, you gotta have the ability to like hit your finger and sell and, and move on. Um, but I, I feel like the stock market for me every day is like a tennis opponent. You just gotta battle. Um, it's been humbling. Um, sometimes it, it's been incredibly rewarding when you when you have a big score and then there's nothing worse than just getting your arse kicked
0: now listen this is the off the court report um and you know you and i we've spoken after you know some unfortunate moments um we've we've spoken after a uh a massacre um and 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 such and I know you're a socially minded person. What have your perceptions been of uh, the response to the George Floyd murder um, by the tennis community and by, and just your your perceptions as just a you know just a socially minded uh, you know father and husband and such? Just
1: I, I mean, it's horrifying to see something like that and. I mean, just hopefully, we can have change. You know, when you look at somebody, it, everybody is equal. And then during this pandemic, I mean, it, it, it was a, br- a rough time. It was a rough time, and there's a lot of people out of work. And then all of a sudden, we had a few things that happened. Um, the, the 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 one Atlanta, the the George Floyd and then the lady making the outrageous claim against the guy in Central Park, which then was the pre- precipice probably for all of these demonstrations, which I think are an awesome thing. It just was unfortunate that some hooligans got involved in, in looting and, you know, who probably weren't even meant to be part of the, the protesting. That's what our country is built on, you know, freedom of speech. Um, but there's nothing worse in, in my mind than hearing about a situation in Minnesota where this policeman had 17, um, I believe, misconducts. I mean, infractions.
0: Infractions. Just had,
1: infractions. Just had a, a, a massively egregious one a few months ago. And I'm not saying by any means that all police are bad. But there's good people. There's bad people. This was a, a bad person that we probably shouldn't have been working in that position for a long time. But demonstrations are a great thing. Hopefully, change will come. Um, But it's just a, it's a really, uh, you know, you know, unprecedented time. It's like, um, the first time I went to Wimbledon and then you see on the plaque, no play 1940 to 1945. you, You start to wonder now, like with the virus, you know, 40 years from now, people will look like, wow, they they didn't play tennis for a few years because of this virus, you know, but let's just hope from all these demonstrations that that change um, will happen. And the one thing that I've been hearing, it's a great thing um, on social media, telling everybody, if you're protesting and you want
0: change, make sure you vote. 100 percent. And I just want to share That, um, you know, I don't know them personally, but I felt proud of, you know, three people in in particular, which was um, Coco Goff, Naomi Osaka, and Francis Tiafo with his girlfriend. Well, yeah, uh, nice applause for those three in particular, because they really, in in, in all those cases, they kind of walked it like they talked it.
1: What's amazing, Coco is 16 years yeah, old. Yeah, and her poise
0: and maturity
1: and how well she speaks—like, it, it wow! For, forget about her just being the great tennis player. What what great responsibility
0: uh, she showed? To be honest, just talking about, I get the chills a little bit because you know Muhammad Ali was 18 when he won the Olympics in Rome, and she's just uh, you know 20 months behind and the speech she made at in her hometown made me think about him a little bit, um, which was interesting. And uh, she's,
1: you know, got, she's just got a great future, you know, on and off
0: the court. Well, Um, you know, these are, these are big. And as you know, as you know, and we know, these are big contract players, Naomi Osaka, the highest paid athlete in the world, female athlete, Coco Gauff has huge contracts. There's a lot of people that could say, listen, you can stay apolitical. And they have not done that. And I think that um, that's extremely encouraging.
1: Well, I tell you, you, you hit something about social media. And, it you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm incredibly active. But you can see now if you make a bad decision on social media, that things can spiral out of control like instantaneously. So you you need to be really careful um, what you're doing because, you, you know, if, if you have an opinion, but you say something and you you, you know, that's why I just say now, be careful because uh, social media is instantaneous. It's not like a million years ago where it takes things if you do something wrong it's instantaneous
0: and if you do something right it's instantaneous um those three people for our listeners if you haven't seen it Coco Goff has been vocal regarding uh what what happened to George Floyd and, and 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 Naomi Osaka apparently went to Minneapolis to protest she was at the protest in Los Angeles. She's been extremely vocal on her Twitter and Instagram. And then Francis Tiafo and his girlfriend, who I believe her name is Ayan Broomfield, I believe they made a, a video where they wrangled Serena and. And, and, and they laid down their rackets. I believe his
1: girlfriend won the NCAA in doubles for UCLA. Yeah. And the most amazing thing is, is Osaka. In her press conferences and seems like in her interviews in the last few years, it's been you wouldn't know that she had the She's even said that she's fiercely shy and she seemed to have really come out of herself and she's been interviewing players and, and really, you know, come into her own. Um, um, it's been very unique to see it's interesting
0: watching it's interesting to watch these kids grow up and you know obviously you had a front row seat for it with uh with andre and it's interesting to see and people you know I just like I said I wanted to mention them because you know I, I was very encouraged by seeing some of the tennis community really come out hard and and that's cool let's go into the second set this is the on the court report what is it gonna be like if, when, when it comes back? Because the, the scales are gonna be even, right? Like, nobody's gonna have an excuse. No one's gonna have overplayed. No one's gonna have underplayed. No one's gonna have not had time to train. What is it gonna be like and what do you got, what are you expecting to see with regards to tennis when it comes well, back?
1: The hardest thing about tennis, I remember in 88, the only time that I had a big injury, and I'm off the track for six months. The one thing about tennis, when you're off the track, I call the, the tour is like a moving escalator. You get off, it keeps moving. So this is the case of the moving escalator, everybody's off. And like you said, everybody's in the same boat. But the, the most interesting thing is, you don't know in your mind when go time is. Okay, all of a sudden, Maybe we're going to be playing in six weeks. Maybe we're not. All of a sudden, you could be set to play in eight weeks. Let's say Cincinnati does move to New York, and that's the go time. You're training. You're getting mentally and physically prepared. And two weeks before the tournament, they could pull a ripcord because local health says, "Up, oh, we've had a read." You know. But I think more than anything, is you got to be prepared like you're going to play next week. Because I think that. The worst thing that can happen out of this for a player is you just, you know what, I, I, I can't deal with this. So you're not crossing your T's, dotting your I's. You're not training. You're not working. Um, obviously, you don't want to overtrain. And then you come back and you get, which can easily happen, first week, second week, you get hurt. So could you imagine all of a sudden after all this time, you come back, Injury and you're out, you know, seven eight months. So well, that, that and and,
0: and and we see that we and we see that all the time. What a player, you see it in college and you see it in pro tennis. Where sometimes if a player hasn't done the hard miles in training, they get hurt and that's it, man. So you can't just show up. I do think this whole thing.
1: Um, will we'll be an equalizer at the start because I, I think it's a little bit unknown. Everyone just expects that, you know, the big three and the men's or the top women will be able to roll. But I think after, you know, potentially five months off, you know, first tournament back, I mean, who knows? I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some crazy results. Obviously, Roger's going to be down now the rest of the year, but I, I would totally not be surprised that if we saw something different, if this never happened, I think if we were at the French, it would have been status quo. I think, you know, I don't think that we would have seen anything really that different this year, but now Uh, see, I don't
0: see. I, I have to say, I mean, I was talking to a a mutual friend of ours the other day and he said, Hey man, what about all the guys that have always heard in their heads and they have always been told you're a great practice player and you get tight when you get on the court in the big stadium. Now all of a sudden, there ain't gonna be nobody in the crowd. Maybe somebody who's like a, who has a reputation as being an incredible practice player goes up against you know, a top guy and all of a sudden he's loose as a goose.
1: I'll just say this, uncharted water, you know, and it, but still, you know, what will be interesting is if you're playing with no crowd and you were playing on a small court, it wouldn't feel that it wouldn't feel like normal. But what we feel it's going to feel a little bit like, whoa, is that we're going to be playing, you know, potentially the Cincinnati in the U S open and the U S open, the big matches on a 23,000 seat court with nobody in it. So you're still in the big court. So I, I mean, obviously no crowd, but I think it's the size of the court and that. But I hope, this is just my hope, that, listen, with no crowd, we're going to – I hope that we have players mic'd up in practice. We have coaching on court or, or we literally can talk to players. We, we got to do a little more entertainment, um, you know, especially if, the, you know, for the guy at home, if he's not entertained, he clicks the, the channel. But I hope that we try some things during this time. Well, oh, that's Go fans because listen, the, the the greatness of tennis in any sport is performing in front of the crowd. No doubt. And, and then when it, when somebody's down, like two sets to none, on a on an outside court, the the crowd can lift a player, and you can come
0: back. So I think that that will be missing. Hey man, you know it's interesting. I I, I um. I always have somehow talking about this. I got in my mind. I remember when I was like a little kid being in Newport. I was probably like a ball boy or whatever. And I think I was talking to Tim or Tom Gullickson about Scott McCain. And Tom or Tim said, he said, Scott McCain is a great, great, great practice player. He gets tight in matches. So I can't help but think that maybe the Scott McCains of the world <laughs> might thrive. Give you another one. His teammate, these guys, <laughs> I, I bet you
1: never even heard of him. His name was Kerry Stansberg. He he was on the same team with Scott McCain at Cal Berkeley, played one season there, the same season McEnroe was there, and then turned pro. Maybe he got to, I used to call him Stickman. He was about 6'5. I had to run around the shower to get wet. Maybe his top ranking, I'm going to say 100. Fast forward about So this was, you know, he turned pro in probably 78, 79. I started playing, you know, 81. This guy was like a legend from my section, you know. Legend. A few years older. I started practice with him a few years later. He's struggling. We practice in Asia. And I'm like scratching my head thinking, why is this guy can't win a match? Fast forward a few more years. Now I'm ranked a lot higher. he's barely hanging on we're we're practicing at a club and the guy's just beating me two and two and (laughs) he, he, he can't even win a match in qualies that guy may be in biggest difference and then he's not even playing on a big show court you know he's playing on an outside court but it's the difference of like you know maybe i can't travel anymore it's the winning and losing and the whole pressure of it but this guy, Kerry Stansberry, if you look him up, honest to goodness, I never played a guy. And then I would go watch him play, like in the You know, we were there, and I go, wow. What? I'm almost like, tell yourself you're just practicing on the, at home on the side court. But the problem is when you play a match, they keep score for a reason. Yeah, I know we keep score in practice, but now you have something to gain, something to lose. And there's, there's always been, that aspect of tennis and sports you know and and what separates greatness sometimes the one intangible that i can see from the greatest players in a lot of different sports when we get to the highest point of something for a lot of people time and everything racing decisions everything you know you you get a little maybe for the Michael Jordans, the Wayne Gretzky's, the Rafa's, the Fed's, Serena's. Time, you know, Usain Bolt, Tom brady Time actually slows down for them. And then they can actually see things even clearer and understand what they have to do even more. That's what even separates them more.
0: Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. And I thought because of what's coming next is gonna be a new beginning that I wanted to talk to you, the coach, about new beginnings. And I wanna go through it with really the three premier guys you coached. And, you know, obviously that's Andre, Andy, and... Andy. Um, 1998, um, I think Andre, let his ranking drop to 230 and was lost. Sorry, um, 90, Sorry, 97. 90, sorry, 97. Uh, we, hold on. That
1: uh, wasn't 230. I'll say it was. God, I should know this. I think it bottomed at 149.
0: Sorry. Okay. Um, when you when you kind of close your eyes and think back at that moment. What led, to the, what led to that kind of moment of darkness and how did you bring him out? It changed in one moment, in one
1: conversation, in Andre's room in Stuttgart. And he was kind of a shadow of himself. He was out of shape. He, he didn't play in 97. He didn't play the Aussie, didn't play the French, didn't play the Wimbledon Actually, somehow, like, not in any way, shape, or form ready to play. He did get to the round of 16 in the open, and I actually felt like somehow maybe he was going to, he lost, the ra- I think, the Rafter. He was maybe going to put together a good run, but he, he lost in sit guard. Wait, hold on just- a second.
0: I was with you, and I remember you calling my hotel room and say, saying, pack your stuff. We're getting out of here. And he had had a tragic tournament, right? He forgot his shoes, and and it was
1: disaster. So we went and had a, a conversation in his room. And he asked me specifically one question. Has the game passed me by? And I looked him in the eye and I said, the game hasn't passed you by. What has passed you by is this year you got off the track. You got off the treadmill. If you get on the treadmill tomorrow, you start training your ass off with guilt. We get mentally and physically prepared. Maybe we play a couple of challengers, you know, at the end of the year, get your confidence back. 18 months, boom, you're right back. He looked at me and he said, okay. He went right back to Vegas. He started training unbelievable with guilt, got himself in good shape. And literally it took about 18 months, because 98 he actually played well, but just didn't play well in slams. He got you know, got his ranking back, he won some tournaments, but didn't peak for any slams. But it, you know, but by the summer of ninety-nine, after winning the French finals. Uh, of Wimbledon he got to number one in the world and it, it was an amazing you know it's like a stock, you know it's like going up it's crashing down coming back but for him it was just the rededication putting in the hard yards it was a conversation in a little room like this that I felt like kind of was the precipice for you know the restart
0: when you signed up with Andy Roddick, he had been coached by Tariq ben Habiles, who had, you know, really taken him from a junior, I would say, to, to the moment where I think he might have been around 14 or so when when, you, when, you, when he locked in with you. Is that what that would be fair to say? Do you recall when that was? Uh,
1: yeah, he just lost first round in the French. And was getting ready to play Queens, where he gave me a call and said, you know, are you available? And, you know, I was like, sure. And then I didn't really know him. And I got on the plane. And I got to England the next day. And, like, we had, like, four days to get ready for Queens. And the first thing he told me, he goes, I never win a match on grass. So, like, this should be, like, you know, just... Just to get ready for the hardcore season i'm like hmm massive serve huge forehand you'll be good on grass he goes no i can't even beat british guys you know i see he, he was basically telling me this surface is a throwaway surface for me and, I, and i'm like we'll have a good few days of practice get rid of that stupid orange that gel in your hair the backward visor uh, orange and up no good trucker hat and things will be okay and I'm good. The one thing that I do when I start working with a player, whatever happened before doesn't matter. What you can focus on a coach is what you're doing today. And the most important day is tomorrow because it hasn't happened. And you don't compare him to Andre. You don't compare Radic to Mert. You just move forward and try to help them with the things that you feel like can make them better. And you try to keep things simple, when you're, especially when you're starting with somebody on the fly.
0: But I mean, you guys won the U.S. Open, man. I mean, the kid had the best moment of the kid. the kid had the best moment of his whole career, and shortly he after.
1: Won. How about that? He told me he never wins a match, never, on grass, and he won Queens. And I actually thought he, when he was semi, he's a woman, When he lost to Fed that year I thought he was going to win Wimbledon. So I had him believing It's like, listen, you're playing on hard court. Don't even tell yourself you're playing on grass. You're just playing on a court. It's your serve, your so that if you want to say those are mind tricks, it's sometimes that you 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 work around things that that can be an obstacle with positives.
0: How did you make him better? Um you know, moving into the hardcourt season. How did you get him or how did how did you guys together get to a place where you know he he won he won his uh, one and only Grand Slam he won his won and only major.
1: Well, he had an amazing
0: summer. He went, I believe,
1: twenty six and one. He won Indy. He lost in the semis of Washington. Won Canada. Won Cincy. Won the Open. I mean, an insane summer. Andre had the same summer in '95. Was twenty six and zero, but lost the last match, the finals of the Open to Pete. So maybe you know, two of the best summers you know, I, I, I was involved in the, in the coaching aspect. Um, I think the biggest change that we made when I started with Andy, he, he stood on the baseline to return serve a lot like Andre, but yet he didn't have the, the success or the hand speed. And I moved him way back. And I told him, I said, listen, if we move way back on the return, Maybe we can poke a few more in play, defensive-minded. Then if we get in play, we can use your forehand. But I felt like he missed too many returns or hit too many returns from an aggressive position, not aggressive. And then I said, you have the ability to hold in 45 seconds. I used to say, if the rally goes longer than three shots on your serve, pull a ripcord. But on your return, let's – Let's move back. Let's put a few more in play because if you could sneak at an early break, you can win a 27-minute 6-3 set real often. So that was the big change, and he bought into that. He, first he said, ah, I don't like this. And I'm like, listen, you get an early break, you're going to rattle players like ridiculously with your
0: serve. That was 2003. How good was he then? And did you think that the sky was the limit at that moment?
1: Well, he was serving that summer, Craig, at 70%. I mean, so it, it, it's like Nolan Ryan just throwing strikes all day long. And it's like he's hitting he's – hitting, it's not like he's hitting it right down the plate. And if he was, it's like he's serving 145. Go ahead and deal with it. He was just serving that entire summer. Like – and he literally could come from the locker room, first ball, 141. It's like, Whoa. You know, so I, I knew that that summer, you know, especially the way he was playing in Indy and then at Canada winning his first master series. And then um we had a bet, like if he would win like a master series that summer, he, he asked me, what what would be one of your worst fears? And I said, geez, I got a lot, but I would <laughs> never, the history of the world, jump out of a plane. And Little did I know, he had done it about five times. It was crazy about it. And he goes, okay, when I win Canada, you're jumping out from 14,000 feet. I'm like, okay. And sure enough, every match he was winning there, all he was thinking about is you're jumping out of a plane. And so I think that took the pressure off of him. And sure enough, I mean, wins wins Canada. And yeah. then I had to do it the, the week before the Open. And let me tell you, it was one of the worst experiences of my life. Nope. I thought it was going to be miserable, and it was ten times worse jumping out from 40. <laughs> <laughs> a super hot day. Yeah, no, nope.
0: terrified. Um, but I did it. Uh, do you have an interesting memory uh, from the U.S. Open from those two weeks? Was there a was there a match that sort of helped you pivot to, to take it, to take this to take that title? Did something happen those weeks?
1: Um, well, the first two rounds, I mean, he had. I think first round he played the highest guy not to be seated was Henman. He had lost to Henman in Washington. That was his only loss this summer. And he played Lubacic in a heated match on his birthday, second round. It was a rough, yet two tough opponents to start the tournament. But I, one of the moments that I'll never forget, there was, after the first couple of there was. An insane amount of rain. And in the round of 16, th- there was no play. And then the only match that got played was Roddick was lucky. He was on the night schedule. And then there was a little window, and he got to be like the only match that was played. So in the in the back half of like the tournament, like Ferrero had to play like four matches in four days. Under everybody was having to play, it was a crazy amount of matches. So in the round of 16, so Andy's already in the quarters. He's playing the winner of um Rainer Schutler and Clap Your Hands, Shang Andy had lost to Schuttler in the semis of the Aussie Open and was 0-2 against him. Maybe even 0-3. Shang Chulkin, Roddick had killed him uh, a couple of times already since I had been coaching him. And I had coached, you know, maybe a half a dozen times against him with Andre. And Andre had the same thing, ha- hammered him every time. So I'm sitting on the side of a small outside court for this round of 16 match because, the, the, you know, way behind the schedule. Schalken's ahead. And he walks over because I'm sitting near the court on the side. He walks over to me and he goes, what are you doing here? Because he speaks perfect English. And, and, and I kind of just scout in the match, and it's like, you never lose to me. I mean, you, I, mean <laughs> I didn't want to say that like Roddick was a bit panicked about playing Schutler, who he didn't have a good record against. Right. And, and, and I, but every match, as a coach, it's always great to sit there and scout both opponents. So I actually was scouting that match, but I had more eye and attention on Schutler. And I was really hoping that, like, I you know, it would be a, a gravy had Shulkin won. Shulkin did win, and and then Andy hammered him the next round. Andy and routined he him. Me, he even said to me afterwards in the locker room, he goes, see, I
0: told you. Like, you didn't need to be scouting <laughs> Day of the final? Uh, back into the tournament? Um, Andy was
1: gassed the night beating Nelbandian in five. He had an unbelievable on his foot, like his callus had burned off. And I didn't think anything of it. I was like, food up, fuel up, didn't talk about anything other than just get through tonight, go through, you know, all of your routine. I left him when he was eating at, you know, I went to like three different places because he wanted some food from Campagnola. He wanted some food from there. I picked up, this is before like the Grubhub and all that. I, think I went and picked up from a few different places and I'll see you tomorrow. And the one thing about me is like-
0: Hang on, let's so, just, sorry. Let, so you yeah, had now yeah. Bandian in the semi on the Saturday, correct? Yep, and he finished late saved a
1: match point in the third set and then all of a sudden really lifted his game in the fourth and fifth and but after the match he was kind of physically spent but didn't know it until he took off his shoe and he had absolutely burned through the big callus you know under your big toe it was ripped and but i knew that like didn't, I didn't make anything about it until that night. He was working with his trainer. I went to go pick up food from three different places. I didn't even start talking about tomorrow at all. And I said, I'll see you at, you know, the match was like 4 o'clock. You know, I'll see you, you know, whatever. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. And he had got some work done when we went to the court, taped up that blister, and we just had – a light shoot around maybe at 1.30 and I still didn't say anything you know kind of just keep it like having fun you know we didn't go that hard because of this callous thing that had broke and about 4.15 you know I, I had told him a little bit before on some of the things that I felt like that, that he could do against Ferrero. But he was a lot different than Andre. I could talk to Andre for a long period of time. With Andy, a lot of times it was 10 seconds, get out. Get in, get out. A little bit like Mission Impossible. This message will implode in 10 seconds. Right before he was gonna walk out, you know, referee said it's go time. I pulled him over. Honestly, didn't even know what I was gonna say. And I said, Andy, you're 50 pounds heavier than this guy. His nickname is the Mosquito. Go impose your will and go take this match. He kind of looked at me, fist pump, walked right out, and then he was ready to go. Score? 6, three, seven, six, six three.
0: What'd you do that night?
1: Celebrate it. <laughs> Did you guys have fun? I had, a, I had a bunch of beers, probably a few shots of tequila. Um, it was a nice
0: night. What was the impetus for you guys not continuing and going after another 100 Grand Slams? Why didn't you, why didn't, what, why didn't you guys stay with the program?
1: Um, you know, I, probably one of the three toughest beats of my career as a coach. I'll say my two, the three toughest beats were Andre losing four tiebreakers, In 2001, to Pete, uh, because I felt like he was going to win the tournament
0: at the U.S. Open,
1: and he was playing well that year, and just that was gutting. The '95 U.S. Open final, he won 26 in a row, only to lose to Pete in that final, was massively gutting. And then the 2004 Wimbledon final, where Roddick had lots of chances, two different rain delays after the second rain delay. He was up 4-2, a break in the third. Fence started to serve Ended up losing that. It was a gutting defeat because I, I thought that Andy was there to win that match. And then, you know, at the end of the year, he just decided that he wanted to go in another direction, you know, um, and, and with coaching and, you know, if a p- the player is your boss. It's not like in team sports that player – And coach worked for owner. There's a general manager to mitigate it. But he decided he wanted to go another direction, and that was it. So it was just a phone call, and we, you know, that was it.
0: Would it be fair to say from And I don't, we don't need to, I I know that things go on behind the scenes that I don't necessarily, I don't need to. No, there's no, I mean, I I just, you know, life moved on. But my question is did the relationship change because that loss was so hard? Did, did, the, did the loss affect him for six months?
1: I think he was okay. I think I was probably – I took the loss probably harder.
0: Yeah. Uh, last, last uh, Andy Murray. You took Andy Murray into the top ten, a new beginning. Where, where was he at, at that moment, and, and where did you take him?
1: We started – I think he was about 55. And I think the thing that intrigued me most was – Everybody told me what he couldn't do. He was the pusher. He's never going to be top 10. He's never going to win slams. Why is it? And I, I think that intrigued me most about him was that everybody says what he couldn't do. And I, and I kind of saw the genius in him that he's this counterpuncher um, that, that can come good. He just, when I worked with him, he was very divisive emotionally. Like, you know, he used to love, love to let me have it. and the way he played, I, I told him a ton, and he just got to really get 50 times fitter to play that style. But I, I feel like I really got through him, even though we stopped after 18 months. A lot of the things that we talked about, he then got this team, and he got a lot more serious about things. Um, but you, you, everybody that I've coached, I always root for. But and, you got,
0: But you got him from 55 to 8. So, you guys yeah. obviously did some good work. um what did you do to get to make him play better
1: um, or or, or, that,
0: or again, what did you guys do together to get him to play better what What kind of coaching did you do
1: I think that a, a big thing that, that I like to think of myself as the coach every day that I come to work on I bring pra- passion enthusiasm and I I like to think about when I'm coaching somebody, I'm looking through their eyes. I'm not looking through my own eyes and thinking what I would do. I look through Andy's lens. Now, Andy Murray's lens, what he could do to be better. And I I like to, you know, I can help them strategize. I understand opponents' strengths and weaknesses. Um, And I'd like to think of as a coach, no matter what they do, You you know, I'm not a coach. You see me, I'm not jumping up and down. I'm not like, like blown away or satisfied if they win something. I try to keep them grounded. I try to like, you you know, like no matter if you have the best win or the worst loss, what time is practice tomorrow? And then let's try to, you know, move forward. We win the tournament. We can celebrate, but you don't celebrate in the second round. And when you have a bad loss, you don't rail on somebody. You start planning for practice tomorrow and how we build. I I keep things simple on the road like that. Sometimes I actually worry when things are going too well.
0: Um, But, you know, when you look – so, all right. (laughs) So when you look back at the guy's career, like now it's like, oh, well, it was inevitable he was going to go – into the top he was going to be a great player but when you're 55 that ain't guaranteed right Like, you don't necessarily you're not guaranteed to go from 55 to eight um would would it be fair to say that he was woefully out of shape would it be fair to say that he had a bad attitude where was he coming from um, and where was he going i
1: think that he practiced hard, but he didn't do all the extra gym diet. He didn't, his fuel tank, he couldn't last four hours. So like a couple of hours, he would, cause actually if anything, he was just too thin, you know, and he needed to like build his wing. And I I felt for his style, the way he played, it's like he needed maximum fuel tank. And this was going to take a long time. I got him working with Mark Raybo, this trainer that I know, what uh, trained my whole career with, who trained Chris Mullen. And then he did some training blocks with Andy. And that was his first exposure to understanding about training and what it could do for him. Just unfortunately, during that 18 months with Andy, he had a couple injuries. We missed Wimbledon in 2007. Um, he missed like three months. Uh, so we had a couple injuries. We didn't even, you know... We missed the French, we missed Wimbledon 2007. So, Allen was with him for like three slams. Um, But I knew that, um, and then also too, since I was working for the LTA, I think that he decided at the end of 2007, he wanted to put together his own team, all like not, you know, of the LTA. And so, I think it helped him grow up a lot, make his own decisions, build his team, but I was not surprised. I just remember when I started coaching him in 2008, everybody's saying there's no way he's gonna have the results like Erotic or an Agassi. And even the British press were you know, hoping he'd be top 10 or they thought he had like this great talent. And I'm like, you know what? He's gonna be good. I don't think about numbers. I just would tell him he's gonna be good. When is he gonna be top 10? When is he gonna be this? You know, Everybody wants to know time spe-
0: specifics. And I knew that he was gonna be good. Let's move into our fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. We do it fast, not a deep dive. The best tournament to work as a broadcaster? It's a good question. I'll go Melbourne
1: because I like the groove that I can walk from my hotel to the TV compound and, and my son and Chris Fowler give me the most grief. They call me two-block BG because like I don't leave a two-block ra- radius for 17 days there's a bunch of good restaurants hotel gym so i'll go over
0: best tournament fan experience
1: jeez i'm gonna say indian wells and cincinnati explain um well indian wells is a massive um facility and they have so many practice courts that the fans can come early because a lot of the top players come from Europe early, and you can watch a ton of the players practice on so many courts before the tournament starts. When they have seen and they have this board that tells you when fed, Ralph, all these guys are going to practice. So it's a great experience to come early. And I think Cincinnati is great value. It's like, you, you know, obviously, you, you know, it's on the outskirts of Cincinnati. They massively upgraded the facility and same thing. You can get really close to the practice courts and see a lot of the guys. Um, I think that tournament is massively improved. I mean, listen, all the master series are great. There's great value. I mean, and as a tennis fan, there's, I I say the bucket list, go to all the slams, If you, you know, (laughs) but you know, those two jump out for me, great fan experiences and obviously bucket list you got to say you went to Wimbledon you know but I think now uh
0: I love going to Melbourne best tournament player experience for, for when I played well sure when you play it in now I guess you might say whatever you want
1: I felt like best
0: place for me without a doubt would be a dump if it was a really bad. You place. said this before, but what about like the place? What's the? I'm gonna say the best player experience, generally speaking. Like, I always remember Indianapolis. The players love it. They come out with a TV and this and that. Is there a great tournament that's got, like a great player experience tournament? The players without,
1: without a doubt. I'll go like this. I got in the main draw of Las Vegas. Alan King classic, and this was before there was no hospitality. And when you got in, all of a sudden it was like free hotel, (laughs) above tower, and mirrors on top, and I don't know what the hell it was. And they gave you like two hundred and fifty bucks a day for food, and it was like I lost first round, but I don't think I left the grounds of the Caesars for six days. I was like in heaven, eating it like sushi and having it was like. And, and then you go. No other tournament was like that. So that was the most incredible experience, especially when I was young.
0: The Allen King Classic, uh, Caesar's Palace. Incredible. Uh, your favorite racket?
1: I'm gonna say, God, it was a, just a dog of a stick, but it worked for me. The the uh the, the Fox. The,
0: the Bosworth. Bosworth. The Bosworth.
1: I mean, it was so small. It was 410 grams. I played with the towel grip. Um, the fox, yeah, and then when I ran out of them, it rattled, but for some reason, it worked for me.
0: Your grip size,
1: I played with a four and five eighths with this big towel, so it
0: was probably five, (laughs) four and three quarters. How did you string your racket? Man, you
1: knew that like I could string a racket and. Let's say my first trip in 1981, when I went to Asia for like six weeks, I had five rackets strung. I came back with five rackets strung. I didn't get one strung. <laughs> Everybody said it because I was cheap, but I didn't like, you know what? If I didn't break a string, I didn't mind playing it from 60 pounds down to 45 pounds. And during the summer of 89, when I had my streak, I won 17 consecutive matches with the same racket string job until it finally (laughs) broke um, at the US Open. Uh, So literally, I played like 17 matches in a row with the same string job. I just changed grips. Did you play with
0: natural gut?
1: I did when I played my whole career with a wood racket, but when I switched to that uh, Fox racket, for some reason, I played with like the cheapest nylon called Z-Best.
0: Z-best nylon, and you strung it at 60 and just let it play down until you broke it?
1: I think that by the time I was playing with Fox, I was playing probably in the high 50s. High I started 50s. to down a little bit, but then when you didn't string it for two, three weeks, you know, maybe it was
0: playing in the high 40s. Do you have a preference, the uh, side, do you have a side preference in doubles? Did you, did you always play one side or another, or you play both sides?
1: I probably, like when I was playing, had a little side preference for some reason to the ad side because I thought I returned better. But stupidly, as I've gotten older, I understood that I would have been much better doubles player had I played the deuce court. Maybe I wouldn't have returned as well. Maybe I would have run around more or I could have developed it. But my second shot was definitely better in the deuce court. I should have played the deuce court a lot more.
0: What do you mean your second shot was better from the deuce side?
1: I think my forehand would, it was more effective as a second shot after hitting the return because it, you know cut, takes you towards the center of the court. Um, I I felt I just felt like I could I could hit the forehand dip cross court. I could hit the fore I could do more things with my forehand from the do side than I could from the
0: ad side. Do you save your credentials and if yes, where do you keep them?
1: I mean. I have so many. I think Kim has got, they're probably in Oxnard now in the uh, storage bin. I don't know how many she's got, but she saved a lot. And then, but she likes the ones more where she has the kids' pictures when they were at the tournament. Uh, uh, and she's got, you know, uh, you know, probably all the ones saved that I won major. She's got lots of them. I, I don't know what I do with them. I bring them home, and she put them in this giant thing, so she's got probably lots of them saved.
0: Nowhere to be observed. No,
1: nowhere in the house. No, in in the storage bin.
0: Storage bin. Let's move into our fifth and final set. It's the king of the court. Generally, it's if you could make a change in the sport, what would it be? You know, when this pandemic began, a few weeks in, the 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 conversation started percolating about uh, an ATP WTA merger. What are your feelings about it? Is it a feasible thing? I'm going to say one word, communication.
1: It's a great time during this time away from tennis that they communicate. And now the ATP CEO, the WTA CEO, all the players, can they come together and make this happen? Because maybe as of one, there'll be a stronger union. Maybe they can get better player pensions and, they can they can have more negotiability as a one entity. You know, with, with tennis, you've got the four slams, ITF and the ATP WTA. That's seven entities right there. So I do think that having them together, you know, makes them stronger. But me and you talking about it isn't the same as the player boards and the representatives and all these people coming together you know it's great that sometimes you hear things talked about but then once the republicans and democrats get in things you know they you know then it becomes one side or the other let's hope that from that tweet the communication that something can come of it because i do think that you know if it makes them stronger as one that's a good thing
0: my man, I'm coming up that way shortly. I might see uh, where you're at lunch. Um, I'll be social distance with my mask. And uh, Brad, uh, thank you as always. Stay safe, buddy. My man, you are released. Ciao. Ciao, ciao, ciao. Huge thank you to Brad Gilbert. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini. See what they're doing at sergiotacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout. And the new Quarantine Classic t-shirts have arrived. In white and Terrapattu, the shirts are a throwback to the junior tennis tournament shirts we used to get as kids. They're cool, they're selling like hotcakes, if you're interested, shoot me a message. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.